Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. I need one of these at home. Uh, hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Tuesday, November 15th, and I'm Jeremy Paris. I will point out, Dan, I am Jeremy Paris every day, not just today. I'm stuck. I'm stuck. Um, I'm a proud member of the City Club, and it's really an honor to introduce somebody that I've, I've known my whole life, at least since I was 12. We, we, we went down that road last night, Sari Horwitz. Uh, she is a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative, four times, four times winning investigative journalist with the Washington Post and the author of her new book, American Cartel, Inside the Battle to Bring Down the Opioid Industry. And I just got to say, before we get into the book, a real personal note, Sari and her husband, Bill Schultz, are dear friends of my parents, Zach and Debbie Paris. And when I heard about the book and we talked about what was coming, um, it was very excited to connect Sari with the City Club of Cleveland. It was such a perfect match. Um, not only is she a wonderful storyteller and investigative journalist uh, of the First Order, and you should read her in the Washington Post all the time, but there is such a Cleveland side of the story. A big part of her book covers the trial in Judge Polster's courtroom, and we know the cost of opioids in our communities. Um, and, and, you know, we were, as I was talking with Sari before this, she reminded me that the, the, the rates are actually up. You know, we've had, we've had COVID, we've had all these other things, but this is a problem that didn't go away, it actually got worse. Um, and when looking at death rates related to opioids, Ohio is ranked one of the worst states in the nation, and several Ohio counties are considered ground zero in the opioid crisis. The recent high-profile federal opioid cases have left many Americans with the sense that they understand the opioid crisis. They may believe they know who is responsible and how it came to pass, but there is another dimension to this full story, and one that might have remained hidden from public view were it not for the reporting of our speaker today, Sari, and her co-author, Scott Higgum. Sari Horowitz won the Pulitzer Prize four times, has spent the last four decades at the Washington Post. She has extensively covered the Justice Department and criminal justice issues. Uh, she was a lead reporter in the Post series, The Opioid Files, which was a Pulitzer finalist for public service in 2020. And in addition to today's book, American Cartel, Horowitz has authored or co-authored three other books on criminal justice. Uh, I guess that's how you get for Pulitzer Prize and, yeah, and get invited to the City Club. Um, we are just so delighted to have you here today, Sari and Bill. Thank you for coming to Cleveland. And uh, here's the compulsory part of this. If you have a question for our speaker, and when we said you came in, you don't just get to do your speech at the City Club. You get asked questions uh, by the public, uh, by the audience here on Twitter, and you got to take it for 30 minutes of questioning. So she said, okay, I'm in. So if you have questions, you can text it to 330 541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet, uh, at least for the moment, uh, until, until Twitter goes down, your questions at the City Club. The City Club staff will try to work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Sari Horowitz. Thank you, Jeremy. Good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me to the venerable City Club of Cleveland. Um, I read your, about your history and all the speakers who have been here in the last hundred years, sitting presidents, famous athletes, acclaimed authors, politicians. Um, I am so honored that you also have invited me here today. Thank you to Jeremy Paris for first coming up with this idea and connecting me with the City Club and to his wonderful parents, Zach and Debbie Paris, our dear friends, Cleveland natives. Um, and I'd also like to thank uh, Dan um, Malthrop and Cynthia Connolly for everything you did to make this happen. So this book, American Cartel, is about a national problem and the role of the federal government in Washington, and trial lawyers all over the country seeking a solution. But many of the key events, as Jeremy said, happened in Ohio. Ohio, as you all know, was one of the epicenters of the opioid epidemic, and Cleveland was the epicenter of the massive litigation 
to hold the drug companies accountable. So I feel like it's very fitting that I'm here today. We are in the midst of the deadliest drug epidemic in American history, um, and it's getting worse. Last year, more than 108,000 people died of drug overdoses, the vast majority from the synthetic opioid fentanyl. And I hope I get some questions on that because our book doesn't totally focus on fentanyl, but that's such a huge problem in this country today. Um, that number, 108,000, is the most people who've ever died in one year from a drug overdose. To make a comparison, it's the equivalent of one Boeing 737 jet with more than 200 people on board crashing every day, killing everyone on board. If we had a 737 jet crashing every day and killing 200 people, we would consider this a national urgent problem. Fentanyl in powder form and in counterfeit pills is pouring over the southwest border through legal ports of entry, not over any wall, through legal ports of entry. Federal agents that Scott and I have interviewed, we've been down at the border, are demoralized. They don't really know how to stop this flow from the Mexican cartels. They make huge seizures. You'll re you read about them from time to time. But it just keeps coming, flooding in to American cities with no end in sight. And what many drug enforcement experts believe, and what our book about is about, is how American companies, American pharmaceutical companies, set the table for the Mexican cartels. How, in the name of a hugely lucrative opioid market, U.S. companies turn the other way, and they shirked their legal responsibilities, and millions of Americans became addicted to opioids. I think when most people think about the opioid crisis, they think about the Sacklers. They think about Purdue Pharma. Some of you may have seen the Hulu uh, movie, uh, television show, limited series, uh, Dope Sick. And that's part of the story. But Purdue Pharma was not solely responsible for the opioid epidemic. And that's what our book's about. While the introduction of the pain pill, OxyContin, in 1996, and Purdue's aggressive marketing and misleading marketing, uh, may have ignited the crisis, my co-author Scott Hyam and I found in our two-year investigation that there was a second phase that sadly was much more devastating. Many American companies had a huge hand in fueling this deadly crisis and actually made it worse. Some of these companies are household names. Walgreens, Walmart, CVS, Johnson & Johnson. But there are other companies that we hadn't heard of, many people haven't heard of, like Mallinckrodt. That company, Mallinckrodt, based in St. Louis, uh, manufactured 30 pain pills for every one pain pill that Purdue made. The Drug Enforcement Administration once called Mallinckrodt a drug kingpin. Altogether, these companies manufactured and distributed a shocking 100 billion highly addictive and dangerous pain pills across the country over a six-year period, addicting millions of Americans. DEA agents that we know call them drug dealers in business suits. How do we know about these 100 billion pain pills? So Scott and I found out early on in our reporting that there was a confidential Drug Enforcement Administration database that tracked, uh, because of the reporting from the companies, that tracked where every pill in America, every pain pill in America went, narcotic, from the manufacturer to the distributor to the pharmacy. And we wanted to get that database, obviously, um, but it was confidential. And because of the, the Cleveland litigation, which we'll get to um, later, um, we felt that it was important because both sides in the Cleveland litigation on the multi-district litigation had that database. So the Washington Post decided to file a legal action so that we could get it to. Interestingly, when we went to the law firms in Washington to try to get help to, to bring this uh, action, they were all conflicted out. Most of the major firms represented the drug industry. And so we found a lone lawyer in Akron, Ohio, of course, Ohio, and Karen Lefton represented us in this pursuit. 
we failed um, at the, the, the federal district level. Uh, Judge Polster said no. He was trying to keep this confidential. I think he was trying, he was hoping early on for a settlement in this case. So we appealed to the Sixth Circuit. We won there, and then the Washington Post and other news organizations got this massive data space. It was so big that we had to actually, on an emergency basis, get a new computer to crunch the numbers and get the information out to the American public. And you can go online now and find out exactly. You can put your county in. You can find out which manufacturer, which distributor, which pharmacy was responsible for opioids in your community. So we tell our story. This is, you know, it's, it's, it can be dry policy, but we want to make it come alive. And so we tell it through many rich and colorful characters. And the first part of our book is about a DEA agent named Joe Ranazizi. He was a lawyer. He was a pharmacologist. He was a DEA agent for 30 years. And he was in charge of the unit of the DEA that policed the drug industry. He saw early on in, in like 2004, 5, 6, that time period, that some companies were breaking the law by illegally distributing dangerous narcotics. And he and his team started going after them. He warned them. He sent them letters. Our book opens up with him sitting down with them. And when they ignored him, Joe and his team started shutting down warehouses and forcing the companies to pay millions of dollars in fines. Walgreens, for example, paid $80 million in 2011. But that company uh, that year posed $72 billion in revenue, so $80 million was easily absorbed as the cost of doing business. Sometimes, after the fines, the companies would engage in the same practices all over again, and Joe and his team would go after them again. This went on for a while, and then the drug industry fought back. First, they fought the DEA in court, and then when they lost there, they turned to Congress. They were armed with high-paid lobbyists, lawyers, campaign contributions, and they were actually able to get a law passed at the height of the epidemic that kneecapped the DEA and weakened the ability of the federal government to come after them and to stop the carnage in this country. And then the drug industry went after Joe Renazizi. They crushed him and his team. He was forced out of government by the companies and by officials in his own agency at the behest of the opioid industry. It was all about money, power, influence, the highly lucrative opioid market. And, you know, this, this book, we really talk a lot about the revolving door in Washington, which is true in a lot of ways, a lot of agencies, a lot of industry, but it was at its worst in the drug epidemic, opioid epidemic. The drug industry hired dozens of DEA agents who once regulated the industry, the very people who are supposed to protect us from dangerous narcotics, to work for them instead. They lured them away from the government with very big salaries. They hired the people who knew how the law worked, knew where loopholes were, to help them sell addictive pills and dangerous pills to Americans. They hired former deputy attorney generals to lobby the Justice Department. Dozens of DEA agents did this. One DEA lawyer who worked closely with Joe um, to, to investigate and try to stop what was happening uh, left the government to become an attorney representing the drug industry. And this man helped write the law passed by Congress at the height of the epidemic, the gut of the ability of the DEA to go after the companies. So this is the first part of our book. Joe is pushed out of government after all of this work to try to stop the epidemic. The second part of the book is about what happens next in 2015. A lawyer in West Virginia named Paul Farrell was very upset, very angry about what the opioid epidemic had done to his town of Huntington, West Virginia, another episode, an epicenter of the crisis like Ohio. And he started to file lawsuits against the opioid distributors. So there are, just to tell you the, the supply chain, there are manufacturers like Purdue, Johnson & Johnson, Mallinckrodt. There are distributors like McKesson, Cardinal Health, Amerisource, Bergen, and then there's the pharmacies. It's complicated, you know, when you try to follow in the newspaper the litigation because there's so many players. But he went after the distributors on behalf of cities and counties in West Virginia and the Ohio River Valley. At the same time, other lawyers across the country, New York, Washington, other places, started filing lawsuits. 
Many of these were done under the public nuisance statute, the idea that these companies were actually a public nuisance, like a toxic dump, like a crack house, that they're causing problems that are devastating the community, taxing police, taxing foster care, etc. There's all these lawsuits out there. Paul Farrell then decides to file what's called an MDL, multi-district litigation. And he's, he wants to bring all these cases together under one judge. So the MDL was granted, and the case was brought to Cleveland, of course. And it was put under the supervision of Judge Dan Aaron Polster, who I'm sure many of you have heard of and many of you probably know. Judge Polster, who grew up in Cleveland and cared deeply about the city, along with Cleveland's Carl B. Stokes U.S. Courthouse, those two became central players in this story. Eventually, more than 4,000 cities, towns, counties, and Indian nations brought lawsuits against more than two dozen drug companies, the manufacturers, the, the, the big three distributors, and the pharmacy chains. So there were some settlements, first of all, like the one I came here to, to Cleveland with my colleague, colleagues to cover in 2019. On the night before the trial, and I'm sure many of you remember this, the trial was uh, set to start on behalf of Cuyahoga and Summit counties. The night before, the big three distributors and the manufacturer Teva agreed to settle. Other manufacturers had already settled, so the final amount became $300 million, really for two counties. And that just, that was the start. There were also trials where Joe Renazzisi, remember Joe Renazzisi, our hero who was knocked down, he comes back. He's brought back to life by the trial lawyers, and he becomes the star witness in a trial in, in Cleveland, a six-week jury trial here last fall against CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart. That was a landmark case. The jurors found that those companies contributed to the explosion of opioid overdoses and deaths in Lake and Trumbull counties here in Ohio. And Judge Polster awarded $650 million in damages to those two Ohio counties. And if you're still following me here, there's more settlements. Earlier this year, in a historic settlement, the big three distributors, along with Johnson & Johnson, settled with the rest, the 4,000 cities, towns, and counties, in this litigation for $26 billion to be paid out over 18 years for badly needed education, treatment, and prevention measures. CVS, Walgreens, just agreed to pay about $10 billion to state, cities, and Native American tribes. And just today, breaking news, if you look in your phones, Walmart has agreed to pay $3.1 billion to settle allegations with state attorneys generals. So uh, a lot of good has come from this multi-district litigation. During our reporting, Scott and I traveled to some of the hardest hit areas in the country. We traveled to Ohio, we traveled to New Hampshire, we traveled to West Virginia, and we met with families of victims of the opioid epidemic. And you know, when you go to these places and you stand in a crowd like this and you say how many people have been touched by the epidemic in some way, everyone raises their hands. Everyone knows, has a friend, has a relative, has a son, has a daughter. Um, it's, it's truly heartbreaking. And the juxtaposition, juxtaposition of that pain and that grief on the ground with what we learned was going on inside these companies was stunning. When the Post uh, filed a legal action to get the database, we also were able to get all the internal documents in the litigation. Thousands and thousands of memos and emails. Don't ever write anything in an email because it might come out in litigation. And some of them, the, the emails showed the incredible callousness of these opioid manufacturers and distributors. They knew what they were doing. They knew where the pills were going. They knew that people were dying. And inside the companies, they were laughing about it. And they were mocking people who were addicted to their pills. We have internal emails in our book that show how executives, for example, at one company, Amerisource Bergen, passed around a parody to the tune of, this is for the older people in the room, the Beverly Hillbillies sitcom, remember that, the theme song, with the words changed to make fun of the Pillbillies driving uh, from West Virginia down to Florida to buy their Oxycontin. And if you'll bear with me a minute, I'm going to try to find this here in the book and read, 
read you, if I can find it, the parody. So this is an email that's passed around Amerisource Bergen. Um, and if those of you who know this show, you can think of the tune in your head. Come and listen to a story about a man named Jed, it began. A, a poor mountaineer barely kept his habit fed. Then one day he was looking at some tube and saw that Florida had a lax attitude about pills, that is, hillbilly heroin. Well, the first thing you know, old Jed's a driving south. Kinfolk said, Jed, don't put too many in your mouth. Said, sunny Florida's the place you ought to be. So they loaded up the truck and drove speedily, south that is pain clinics, cash and carry, a bevy of pillbillies. And it went on and on. Um, and then another one from a company, uh, this is from uh, Malincrot, and just to kind of give you some idea, this is another email we found. There's a salesman from Malincrot named Victor Borelli, huge salesman, he was very successful, he won a lot of awards for the company, sent to the Caribbean, and he's dealing with his, um, he's dealing with a distributor, um, a guy named Steve Cochran, and uh, Borelli writes him, if you're low on pain pills, order more. If you're okay, order a little more. Capiche? Destroy this email. Is that really possible? Oh, well. And then Cochran writes back, keep them coming. They're flying out of here. It's like people are addicted to these things or something. Oh, wait, people are. And Borelli writes back, just like Doritos, keep eating, we'll make more. And there's so many stories in this book about um, emails and internal documents that really help tell this story. When, when we talk to the families of the victims of the crisis, uh, they are happy that there is settlement coming, money coming that will hopefully go towards treatment, addiction, uh, prevention, and education. But they are very upset that no criminal charges have been filed against any company executive. There's about 40,000 Americans behind bars on marijuana charges, mostly distribution, but not one executive of a Fortune 500 company that peddled opioids has been criminally charged. No company executive has apologized or accepted any responsibility for the role in an epidemic that has taken more than 600,000 lives, more than the US military lost during World War II. Um, I just wanna go back to fentanyl for a minute here because that's now where we are. Um, I'm gonna read you some stats here. On average, one person in America dies every seven minutes from a fentanyl overdose. And I think, and Jeremy and I were talking about this, maybe because of COVID and the attention of COVID and the public health uh, system, we have kind of forgotten the opioid epidemic. And we've forgotten that this is, our book is some history, but this is not history, what's going on now. And, and fentanyl is the big killer. Um, in 2022, opioids killed more people than the coronavirus, automobile accidents, gunshots, accidental falls. Now, it's really important um, for everybody, but especially for young people, to understand what's going on with fentanyl. You know, the DEA has a, has a education campaign, One Pill Can Kill, and I think it kind of gets drowned out. But it's so true. The cartels and American drug dealers are putting fentanyl, this, this powder that's so powerful that a couple of uh, like flecks of salt, size, fentanyl can kill you instantly. They're putting it into every drug. They're putting it into oxycodone. They're putting it into meth. They're putting it into cocaine. They're putting it into crack, Adderall, Xanax, so that if you are at a party and someone hands you a pill, so it's not a, it's, it's not a prescription from a doctor, it's a pill off the street, it could have fentanyl in it. And I am working on a story right now about a party. This happened actually in Colorado earlier this year. Five people at a party. These are all working people. They have kids. And they just, this is a sort of recreationally want to use some cocaine. They get together at this party. They did not know that the cocaine that people brought to the party was laced with fentanyl. They had no idea. They um, did, did a line, they were doing lines of cocaine they all five dropped to the ground instantly and died immediately, leaving seven children uh, without a parent. 
And, you know, since then, we've ta I've talked to a lot of their relatives, they absolutely had no idea that there was fentanyl in the cocaine. And you can't, I mean, there are ways to test drugs, and, and there's been a lot of publicity about that. Um, but if you're not doing that, you could get drugs with fentanyl in it. There are, have actually been, uh, there, I think these cases are rare, slightly rare right now, but there have been some cases where it's in marijuana too. No, they're not rare. It's not rare? Okay, so we have an expert. So there you go. So no drug is safe. That's really, and that is such a problem and such a challenge for our country now that no drug is safe. And that these are, now I may get some, I hope I get some questions about this, about fentanyl, because there's so much more to say and I know I'm kind of running out of time here. So um, the, the one interesting thing I would, I would say that we're seeing and that ties the fentanyl coming across the border now to what the, ph the pharmaceutical companies did is, so Malincrot had a, a very popular pill. It was called, they, they called it the blue, the blues. And actually the highway from Appalachia to Florida became known as the blue highway. It was a small blue pill. It was 30 milligrams of um, generic oxycodone. It said 30 on one side and M on the other. And these became the most popular oxycodone pills in the country, the blues, and uh, much more popular than OxyContin. Uh, and so what's happened now, what's coming across the border in huge baggies are counterfeit blue pills that look just like Mal Malincrot's gone out of business. They're, they've gone bankrupt but be and because of this litigation. But these blue pills that they once made are coming across. The Mexican cartels have pill stamps. They make them now. And it's, it's fentanyl. And so, again, if you're at a party or you're somewhere and someone hands you a pill and you think it's a blue Malincrot 30, um, it, could be, it could be fentanyl and you could die. So, you know, that, this is where I, when I talk about, uh, and Scott and I have, have, have written about, how what these companies did by dicting so many people and opening the market up for the Mexican cartels, that's a really a good example of it. Um, I see I'm getting close to my time here. Um, so there, there are, and maybe I can talk more about this but um, in, with the questions, but we, we went to uh, several communities in Ohio uh, to talk to people in, in rehab. Um, Washington Courthouse was one place we spent a lot of time. And one thing we could just heard over and over again was how difficult, especially with fentanyl, it was to sort of kick the habit. That we met people, we met young women in rehab who had gone in one time, come out, went back a second time, a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time, because it was just so difficult. It's such a difficult addiction. And um, I'll just maybe end with this one thing, if I can. I'm going to read you. We went to um, uh, Washington Courthouse has had a jail where there were people who had been arrested for having fentanyl. And I'm just going to read you this passage uh, to give you a sense of what happens when there's not enough rehab resources and treatment in the community. And I, I know there are people here who I've met today who are working on the solutions and are trying to get more uh, treatment, but this place didn't have it. In a dungeon-like jail in the center of this depressed farming town, 18 women in orange and white striped prison uniforms are crammed into a two-story cell block. Many of them are withdrawing from fentanyl. The jail, built in 1884 to hold 24, now houses 55 men and women, a number that can swell to as many as 90. The inmates are sprawled on metal bunk beds and mattresses that line the floor as they wait for court appearances or serve time on low-level drug offenses. The medical exam room used to treat minor ailments is tucked into a broom closet beneath the concrete stairwell. With few drug treatment options, prisoners strung out, strung out on fentanyl go through days of withdrawal with little help, shivering and curled up on the beds and floors of the jail. Quote, it's definitely our detox center right now. They just sit there and they withdraw there, Fayette County Deputy Health Commissioner Lee Cannon said. Treatment is where we need help. We keep hearing that money's coming, but we haven't really seen it. The inmates here are at least alive. Unlike so many drug users in this part of central Ohio, 40 miles southwest of Columbus, Fayette County has the seventh highest number of fentanyl overdose deaths per capita in the nation.
Okay, I think I'm gonna stop here because I'm at my little 12.30 mark. <laughs> You didn't have to stop so abruptly, but I'm, okay, I'm really I'll glad that we have a Q&A. Okay. I'm Dan Malthrop, uh, Chief Executive here at the City Club, and we are all participating in a forum with Sari Horwitz. She's the author of American Cartel, Inside the Battle to Bring Down the Opioid, to, I'm sorry, Inside the, the Battle to Bring Down the Opioid Industry. Uh, and we're about to begin the audience Q&A, as we noted. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our live stream at cityclub.org. If you would like to tweet a question, you can tweet it at the City Club, and we'll work it in. You can also text your question to 330-541-5794. The number again is 330-541-5794, and our team will work it into the program. May we have our first question, please? I think that's you, sir. I just want to thank you for your speech today. My name is Aaron Jeter, and I'm from Solon High School. I brought a group of 30 students with me um, to hear you, but I look forward to reading your book as well. Thank you. I have two questions. Uh, one comes from Dr. Chris Tedishiki from the Columbia uh, Journalism Review. He wrote this in 2019, and it, it caught my attention. I wanted to hear your thoughts on, on this. He said, and many doctors hesitated to prescribe opioids, which are heavily regulated because they can be used by addicts, a pain management specialist told the Associated Press in 2000. But for people who have never abused drugs and have no history of psychological problems, hardly any become dependent on pain medication. A 2001 U.S. News and World Report story described Oxycontin as safe, effective medication with few side effects and put the chances of addiction at 1%. In 2002, the New York Times story characterized physicians as reluctant to prescribe opioids despite the fact that in three studies involving nearly 25,000 patients with opioids who had no history of drug abuse, only seven cases of addiction arose from the treatment. He goes on to say that reporters describing the importance of opioids 20 years ago and their dangers today echo the consensus of the medical establishment. But covering the story without a healthy dose of skepticism or just choosing not to cover it at all can be dangerous. While the presence, uh, the precise influence of news on doctors is difficult to quantify, a 2013 study by British researchers found that emotional, personal stories that you talked about impacted healthcare providers' attitudes towards whether or not they were going to prescribe uh, opioids. My question, what are your thoughts on people being hesitant today given uh, the media and the relationship with Big Pharma, um, you know, uh, describing opioids. Uh, we talk about things today and people's hesitancy. What are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah. Sure, that's a good question. Um, I want to make a point before I answer that question. Uh, you mentioned that that one percent statistic um, that came out and that Purdue Pharma used uh, that less than one percent people get addicted um, and. Uh, that is not true, and it has been debunked over and over again. Uh, Patrick Radden Keefe in Empire of Pain, Beth Macy in Dope Sick, and the person who actually wrote where that came from has said that it was um, totally misleading. And what it is is there was a, a doctor, uh, there was a it wasn't a study, it was a letter to the editor, editor of the New England Journal of Medicine in 1980, Porter and Jicks, it's a famous letter where he wrote a letter um, saying that he had, had looked at some hospital patients and um, in, a, in a controlled setting, um, they did not appear to be uh, um, addicted, uh, getting uh, less than 1% addicted. He did not mean that at all. It was not an official study. It didn't, he didn't mean it at all for patients across the country. And that was used, that 1%, when uh, sales representatives from Purdue and other companies went out and this is, you can really see this in the movie Dope Sick that's really shown, to try to persuade skeptical doctors. They kept saying there was a study that showed that less than 1% of people get addicted, and it was completely wrong. Um, your other point is a very good one, which is doctors being, you know, some doctors, some doctors, not all doctors, being uh, nervous, at least with all the publicity and what's happened, to prescribe um, opioids. And let me just say, let me add to that, that opioids um, and fentanyl even in a hospital setting 
where someone is in severe pain, where someone has had surgery, where someone's in hospice, for example, um, are very good drugs and important drugs. And um, what I'm talking about and what all the other journalists who are writing about this and what people in the medical profession are talking about is um, illicit opioids um, who are, that are not prescribed under the direction um, of a doctor or for severe pain. Now, it is true that some doctors are nervous, and the CDC is looking at, at this very carefully because while the pendulum swung way, the, the way I explained in, in my book, the other way, it's, it's now kind of swinging maybe too far the other way, where some people who need opiates say they aren't getting them. We certainly hear from those people, and whenever I give a, a talk, I get a question about this. And so they're trying to come up with some guidelines for doctors, more precise guidelines to help them now, given what's happened in the last 20 years, um, responsibly uh, prescribe opioids. Okay. Good afternoon. We have a text question. Harm reduction practices like fentanyl, test strips, and safe usage sites are being used to combat deaths. Why are so many officials and leaders against this practice? That's a very good question. Um, and, I, and I don't know if all of you understood what I was talking about earlier about testing your drugs or taking these drugs in a safer setting. Um, it has been shown that that saves lives. And, um, you know, I don't want to get too deep into, you know, my personal feelings about this, but it's been shown it saves lives, and I don't understand the resistance to it, given the fact 200 people a day are dying of fentanyl. It's better if people are going to, I mean, let's be realistic. When I say no drug is safe, are people just going to stop all taking drugs? No, that's not going to happen. And it's going to maybe gradually we're going to change our relationship with drugs in this country. But in the meantime, I think that the fact is it's pouring over the border, huge supply. And so we have to do something on the demand end. And I think to save lives, I think it's very important to have these testing uh, harm reduction uh, measures in place. Excuse me? Well, college students, for example, and, and some of you folks, some of you students may know about this a little bit. And Feel free to jump up and talk about it. But college students can order them on the internet, can order test strips. Um, I know high school kids uh, and college kids are getting hold of them. Um, various ways they can be ordered, they can be bought. And I'm sorry, you, you asked the question. And so this is happening all over the country, that people are, are testing drugs. Now, for example, the party that I told you about, where five people died instantly, leaving all these children without parents, um, if they had tested, so when the police came into that scene, they have a very fancy $30,000 device called a TrueNARC that tests the drugs. Immediately, it came up fentanyl because there was so much fentanyl, you couldn't even tell that there was any cocaine in the drugs. So these test strips, you know, can help. Hi, my name is Jada. I'm from Solon High School. Um, since there have been no criminal charges brought against these companies, do these large settlements actually prevent them from doing things like this in the future? No, that's a good question. Um, no, they don't. Okay. They don't prevent them from doing these. Uh, these settlements, for example, let me talk a little bit about the $26 billion settlement because that's the one that's affecting most communities. And it's very different than the tobacco settlement in the sense that which did not, the money did not go to the communities it needed to go to. That was uh, controlled by the state's attorneys general. And this settlement has in it very, and it took a long time to get to this settlement because it has in complicated formulas for each locality. I think I was talking to, yes, you, um, about that. The money is starting to flow into these communities and the money is only, it, it, I mean, I shouldn't say only, but it's, for, it's earmarked for treatment, rehab, education, and feel free to, if you, if you want to say anything more about that, but it's, it's coming into these communities now. Um, we are going to be watching pretty carefully, journalists all over this country are going to be watching where that money goes. There's also uh, a board that was set up as part of the settlement that came out in February, a board that's also going to be watching the money to see that it goes to where it's supposed to go. But it does nothing towards trying to prevent companies from, from doing what they did. 
And there are, are, are many people that we've talked to and people in our book who feel like these settlements are sort of a slap in the hand to these companies, that they're not going to, you know, they're, they're really part of the cost of doing business in the same way the Mexican cartels. When the Mexican cartels send over fentanyl, we sometimes will seize a truck. And you'll read about these big seizures, but seven more get through. And for the Mexican cartels, that's the cost of doing business, okay? There are people, and they, we quote them in our book, um, who feel like these American companies um, got away with murder, that they their pills caused a lot of death, a lot of addiction, and they're paying a fine and they're moving on. And if you talk to families, you go into communities uh, that have been hard hit, that's all you'll hear about. To follow up on your point that um, opioids can be properly um, um, prescribed for patients, especially if they have acute pain. Um, the defense in the opioid litigation for pharmacies has been, um, we don't, we don't prescribe it, uh, it's the doctors. The doctors are the ones who are giving the medication and we are just filling prescriptions and how do we know? And I'm aware in the opioid litigation that there is this joint responsibility between pharmacies and doctors. My question for you is, what about the doctors? Um, in the opioid litigation, there, as you indicated, there's manufacturers, distributors, and pharmacies but no doctors. Uh, what has been the history and, and what's going on with respect to any civil or criminal litigation with respect to the doctors who definitely, definitely have overprescribed opioids, especially when there's uh, not acute pain? Very good question. I'm glad you asked that. Um, and before I answer that question, I just want to point you made earlier about what the, what the companies argue that it wasn't their responsibility. Uh, it's very important to understand under the law, under the Controlled Substance Act of 1970, distributors have a very, and, and pharmacies have a very important obligation. Distributors, when they see, when a distributor, let's say McKesson, sees that a pharmacy, CVS, is suddenly ordering a huge amount of pills that they didn't order last month or the month before, thousands and thousands more, um, tens of thousands or more, under the law, they are supposed to stop shipping to that pharmacy, they're supposed to uh, do due diligence, find out what's going on with that pharmacy, and they're supposed to report it to the DEA. And that didn't happen at all. That didn't happen at all. And so distributors, that's why the distributors were brought into the litigation, because they could argue, well, hey, it's not us. We're just filling prescription. We're filling what the pharmacies want. And pharmacies are saying, pointing the finger, we're, we're doing what the doctors want. Everyone was blaming everybody else. But under the law, it, there's this very specific obligation you're dealing with with uh, controlled substances, narcotics. And so in 1970, Congress had the wisdom to say, we've got to put some controls in place. And those were the controls that were ignored. Your point about doctors is a good one. And many, many doctors have been arrested. Many doctors are in prison. In fact, there's, and there's a chapter in our book about doctors in Portsmouth. Um, we have a whole chapter about Portsmouth. Um, and what happened there, and it's just really heartbreaking, and if I have time, I'll read you a little bit of it, but um, the, there were two big doctors who ran pill mills there who were arrested, uh, criminally charged, and sent to prison. There's a doctor in Florida, I believe his name was Barry Schultz, um, and he's in prison for life. So there were many criminal cases made against the doctors. The problem is the DEA and the Justice Department, DEA is part of the Justice Department, people like Joe Ranazizi were like, you know, we can arrest doctors all day. We can bring criminal cases like against doctors all day, but we have to go higher. And that's when he started shutting down internet pharmacies and then going after the distributors. And that's when the distributors said, whoa, we don't want the DEA to come after us like this, and we have to go to Congress to stop it. And really stunning that they were able to do that. Hi. Did, uh, did that answer? I'm sorry. Did that answer? Yes. Okay. Uh, hi, my name is Mahir. I'm from Solon High School, and I just want to say thank you for offering to answer my question. So if I remember correctly, you said that all these drugs and fentanyl and what have you are coming over the border or legally. So my question is, is there anything Congress can do to alter or institute any new trade barriers uh, or any ways to affect trade with countries that are bringing drugs into the country? And if that is possible, do you think that's a good solution to solving this epidemic? Thank you for your question. That's a good question. 
So a couple things on that. Um, the what, what we know, and we have a, I, I want to, I can't, I don't want to say everything that I know about this because we have a big series about to come out in the Washington Post that gets into our relationship with Mexico. But um, I can, I will say this, that the, the precursors to make fentanyl are coming from China. They're coming into Mexico. Uh, they used to come right into the United States. You, people used to be able to order uh, the precursors to make fentanyl through the internet, and it came through the postal service. But now what we know is they're coming into Mexico, and the Mexican cartels are using that to make the fentanyl that's coming across the border. There is a lot of alleged di- diplomacy trying to be between U.S. Uh, drug enforcement people and Mexican drug enforcement people to get a hold of this problem. Um, some of the Mexican leaders don't think it's a problem. Don't, they, say, they, they say they're being unfairly blamed for the fentanyl coming across the border. Um, it's, when I say it's coming through legally, it's not coming through, le- it's coming through legal ports of entry, which means a place like San Ysidro, if you go to, has 26 lanes of traffic. Okay, and people are coming through. It's, I, what I meant is, it just—it's not like it's coming through over the wall, or it's coming through cars and through trucks and through people coming through our legal ports of entry. And I've been down there, and they ha- there's a lot of dogs, there's a lot of equipment, but and they're trying, and they do—they do seize uh, massive amounts of drugs. This is, you know, this has gone on. This is not just fentanyl. I mean, this has gone on for decades, trying to catch cocaine, heroin, meth coming. And it's, you know, they're throwing a lot of people at it. They're throwing a lot of money. They're throwing a lot of technology. But it's still still getting through. And so that's why when you talk to government officials, what they say is we've got to stop the demand because we're not going to be able to stop the supply unless we completely close the borders. And I don't think that's going to happen. So... Um, you know, it's coming through. Agents are having a terrible time stopping it. You go down there, they're so frustrated um, by it. And so the message has got to get out through education campaigns about how fentanyl danger, how dangerous fentanyl is um, and how it's, it's just, like I said, killing 200 people a day. Hi. Thank, thank you for your work. Thank you for this book. I really look forward to reading it. I have, I have to say I was very jarred by the two readings you did um, from the executives or members of Big Pharma talking about the hillbilly song that they wrote and then the Dorito comment. Um, And I'm sort of curious if you've written about this in your book or your own sort of personal reflections about the disconnect there. That feels like sociopathic behavior. And I'm sort of curious, is there dehumanization going on? I'm just sort of wondering how the human mind can make that disconnect. Right, that's an excellent question. And the executives who were involved in writing these emails, and there's many more, believe me, um, would not sit down for interviews with us and would not answer our questions about why they happened, why, the, why this happened. But I, I think that they're, I mean, what, would they ha- what executives have said publicly is many of them have said, we didn't know this was happening. We didn't, we didn't really know what was happening on the ground, what's coming out now in litigation. We didn't understand the extent of it. And I, I just want to tell you one story that, that shows that how, that questions how can that be. So we went to a little, there was a town in Florida, Oviedo, Florida. And actually, let me see if I can call this up. And there were uh, Walgreens stores there that were selling oxycodone. And um, the, the, uh, the police chief was getting very upset about what was happening at the Walgreens stores. And um, because what happened, what, basically what was going on was pe- where people were coming in from all over, Appalachia, um, all over Florida, you know, everywhere, um, to, and they, had, they, had, they would uh, show different prescriptions from different doctors, and they were all being filled. And when there's different prescriptions from different doctors, that's a big question mark. Okay, but then in the parking lot of these Walgreens, it was pretty much an open air drug market. People would come out, they'd get their prescriptions, they'd come out, they'd crush the pills, they'd snort them, um, they'd inject them in different ways, and they'd get onto the road. And there was a lot of crime in Oviedo, Florida, because of this. So the police chief, and we have a we have a, a whole chapter on this in the book. The police chief wrote 
to the top three executives um, of Walgreens. And he, uh, the chairman's name was Alan McNally, president and chief executive was Gregory D. Wasson. And he, he said, look, I'm a police chief in this small town. Help me out here. There are these Walgreens that are, you know, there's lines around the block to get oxycodone, to get oxycontin. Um, everybody knows it's happening. We've gone to the Walgreens folks themselves and said, please work with us, the police department, because we have crime here. We have people um, crushing drugs and using drugs in your parking lot and getting on the road and there's accidents. And it keeps going on. And he wrote them these long pleading letters, which we only were able to see, again, because of the litigation. And when we sued, we're able to get these internal documents. The executives never wrote him back. So I, I use as an example as they knew. They knew what was going on in these small towns. They were hearing from people. This is law enforcement sort of begging them to do something. Um, and, and one more story, and then I know I have a question here, but one more story. There's, there was a CVS store also in Florida. The DEA was, uh, went down there. Some agents went down to the CVS and noticed, again, long lines around the block and the parking lot selling drugs. And they, they started to investigate this particular CVS store, and they went in and talked to the pharmacist and said, um, you know, what's, what's going on here? And this is unbelievable. This is a, in a deposition, too. And it's, it's, there's all kinds of testimony around this. And the pharmacist said, well, yeah, but it's not a worry because we close down at 2 o'clock and save uh, oxy We save a lot for the real legitimate pain patients. They knew. They knew. Yes. Uh, thank you for um, accepting my question. Um, my name sure. is Kaden Jones. I, I represent Solon High School. Um, my question to you is, so you talked earlier about that story about how all those people were using uh, cocaine, right? Um, they were using it rec rec recreationally, right. and they died because it was laced with uh, fentanyl. Why would these street distributors of these, uh, not recreational, but these street drugs of heroin, cocaine, meth, why would they lace these drugs with fentanyl? I love that question. That's a really good question. Thank you for asking it. Because people wonder, okay, if a drug dealer knows that putting fentanyl in his drugs are going to kill all his customers, why would he do it? Right? And the answer, the simple answer is because it doesn't kill all the customers. Here's the, the deal. If you are like the folks in that apartment and haven't used fentanyl or any opioids before, chances are you're going to die. But there are a lot of people out there who have used opioids and can handle opioids and use fentanyl and are addicted to fentanyl. And that's who they keep selling to. Fentanyl is much cheaper and produces a much more powerful, better high, I hear, than other opioids. And there are enough of the customers that, in fact, when something like that incident happens, that becomes known in some communities as a kill pill, okay? A batch of cocaine or other drugs that's got fentanyl in it and killed people. Kill pill. And people, there are people who want it then because that means it's so potent and will produce a big high. So it's kind of confusing because we hear about all the deaths, but there are a lot of people who are tolerating fentanyl and are fentanyl addicts, and that's who the dealers want to target. So again, the cost of doing business. Some people are going to die because there's fentanyl, but some people are going to live and spend a lot of money uh, buying fentanyl. Hello, I'm Karen Perez-Steigerwald, and I am the school nurse at St. Martin de Porres High School. I also work in a hospital, which I will name nameless right now, just... Uh, for the sake of, they may be in that book. Um, anyways, um, I'm going to back up because it's the same thing. My instances with the people who overdose on what they don't think fentanyl's in, um, I have noticed that um, we'll get youth in who, it's recreational marijuana or if it's medical marijuana, I have no idea, but when their tax screens come back, there's fentanyl in their system. So either they've been using it before or it was in the drug. But I'm going to back up with you thinking they're not worried about dying. I also think dealers put, this is just my own theory, a little bit of fentanyl because they want these kids to come back and be their customer. So they put in a little bit, and then they put in a little bit more, and a little bit more, and then one of them makes it overdose. But it's an addicting thing. They got money. They got, they got 
more customers this way. So um, if you honestly think that your drugs are clear with anything, think again, because that's not what I'm seeing in the hospital. I work in an emergency room too, with what's coming back in people's tox screens or the student, patient, whoever comes in is lying about what they're doing, but we're seeing a lot of fentanyl. Um, another thing that um, I worry about is even with the prescribed, I've heard this from, I work in a pediatric emergency room as well, from the um, kids who are kind of addicted. I said, where are you getting this from? My grandparents, I switched the pills out. They buy pills that look just like this with, like you were saying, that M30, whatever. So maybe oh, they were buying yeah, the some blues. that look, and then they don't know and they switch them out in their grandparents' cabinets. And then they take the fentanyl themselves or the oxycodone themselves and they sell it or they use it or they crush it and they do things with it. So um, students who are out there, this is your generation. You, you have to do what she said in demand. We have to get the demand down. Do what you can to educate your friends who are trying to use drugs because that's what I'm trying to do at the school. Thank, Thank you. you. I'm so glad we heard from someone on the ground who sees it, who sees it uh, every day. You know, one of the experts um, said to me um, it, uh, in law enforcement said, you know, it's kind of like he compared it to making chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> I mean, there's not a recipe the drug dealers are using. There's not a precise recipe. And so sometimes there'll be a little fentanyl, sometimes a little more, like a chocolate chip cookie, one chip, sometimes two chips, sometimes three. You know, it's like that. It's not a precise recipe. And so people don't know what they're getting. Thank you very much for adding Thank that. Um, if I have time, can I just add, I'd like to end this on a, a little bit of an, uh, this is all so negative, so uh, sad, so tragic. Um, but I just want to tell you, uh, read you uh, one thing that we wrote. And it took place in Ohio. And it's a story about a solution and about hope. So maybe if I can just read this. Um, we were down in Hamilton. Anybody know Hamilton? Hamilton? Several nights a week, there's a woman named Christine Berhansel. She drives the streets of Hamilton, a former paper and steel, steel mill towel, town in southwestern Ohio, handing out blankets, food, and closed attics. She is a recovering addict herself. She's now director at Sojourner Recovery Services, a treatment facility in Butler County. One man she tried to help was James Prophet, 40, who had lived on the streets for years. His path to fentanyl was typical. He started by taking large doses of OxyContin and then turned to heroin and not knowing it had been laced with fentanyl. But then he began taking fentanyl. It's all fentanyl, he said to us in an interview. The county's flooded with fentanyl. He overdosed four times but kept using. And we haven't really talked about this, but law enforcement brings people back, nurses bring people back with Narcan. So he overdosed four times, Narcan back. It takes all the pain away, Prophet said. You get numb, you don't feel nothing. That lasts about five hours, and then it starts to wear down. You get cold chills, start cramping up, and get sore, and then you have to do it again. Bernazal, Christine, finally succeeded in getting Prophet help, but only because he was arrested and faced the prospect of six months in jail. He remembered meeting her on the street and how she tried to convince him to seek treatment. He asked the judge whether he could get into her program. Christine was my guardian angel, said Prophet, who has been clean since. She never gave up on me. They turned me around 180 degrees. So there are people out there on the streets, especially in Ohio, and we talked, Jack, Jack and I talked about the solution, Jack, right? <laughs> talked about solutions that he's working on personally um, to make this a solution state, right? That's what you said. So thank you. Okay. Our thanks to Sari Horwitz for joining us at the City Club today for a forum that's part of our Authors in Conversation series, which is sponsored by the John P. Murphy Foundation, Cuyahoga Arts and Culture, and the Cuyahoga County Public Library. We're grateful for their support. Thanks as well to our friends at Max Bax for, for providing on-site book sales of Sari's book. It's titled American Cartel, Inside the Battle to Bring Down the Opioid Industry. We'd also like to uh, welcome all of our, our guests here today at, um, 
And so thank you very much for joining us. Up next at the City Club is on Thursday, November 17th, we will be joined by Lieutenant General Russell Honore, who will discuss the needs of our country's veterans with the Director of Public Safety for the City of Cleveland, Kerry Howard, himself also a veteran. And this Friday, we welcome Professor Kristen Henning of Georgetown Law School. She will be discussing her new book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. You can learn more about these forums and others on our website, cityclub.org. You can share the archive of this forum with whomever you like at cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of our forum today. Thank you once again, Sari Horwitz. Thank you, members and friends of the City Club. Our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.